Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we are lucky to be speaking with Mark Dubofsky, one of the members and the founder of Dubofsky, Sherman, Carciari, Reynolds, PC. He is also an adjunct professor of law at University of Illinois, Chicago, I think soon to be formerly John Marshall Law School in name. Yes. Mark represents individuals in employee benefits claims disputes uh, involving disability insurance, life, health, retirement, long-term care, and other employee benefit-related matters. Many of Mark's cases have resulted in precedent-setting decisions by the United States Courts of Appeals for the Third, Seventh, Eighth, and Ninth Circuits, respectively. Mark is a prolific author who has written many journal articles and has been a regular columnist for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin since 2004. Mark is also a frequent speaker and has lectured at many conferences. He is a certified arbitrator and mediator. And most importantly, he retrieved his Bachelor's of Arts from the University of Michigan and his JD from the University of Illinois uh, College of Law. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me on. I figured Max would really enjoy the fact that you both went to Michigan. Yeah, it's a cult. I, I, I've heard the University of Michigan described as a cult disguised as a university. So that's where it comes from. I went to state, but as Max knows, I like rooting for Alabama, just mostly because I like winners. So no, no hard feelings. With the implication being Michigan State is not a winning school. That might be true. I mean, I think we all agree on that. <laughs> um, well, thanks for coming on our podcast, Mark. You know, we've talked about this before in other episodes where employment law is pretty broad. It covers a broad range of stuff. And you do something that neither Max or I do, which is ERISA. That's definitely above my pay grade for sure. And you've been doing this type of work in disability insurance for over four decades, I think, at this point. You have a national practice. Now, before we kind of get into the weeds on what all of this means, how did you get into ERISA litigation, disability insurance work? Totally by accident. Probably toward the latter part of the 1980s, I had a client come to me with a issue regarding an unpaid medical bill. His wife had had foot surgery and his insurance company refused to pay the medical bill and he wanted me to sue them. The total amount of the bill was something like $2,500. And I told the client that there was really no way that I could handle this because he couldn't afford to pay me by the hour and I couldn't afford to take the case on a contingency fee basis. And finally, he persuaded me to file the lawsuit in the Municipal Department of the Circuit Court of Cook County for small, smaller value claims, which I did. The next thing that I knew, the claim was removed to the federal court by the law firm of Jenner and Block and assigned to the then chief judge of the district court, John Grady, who passed away last year, wonderful judge. So Judge Grady called us in immediately and wanted to know how this case involving only about $2,500 ended up in federal court because back in those days, the jurisdictional minimum for cases brought between citizens of different states, diversity jurisdiction was $25,000. By the time we got to court, I started reading 
Jenner and Block's papers that they filed when they removed the case. And I thought, wow, what's this ERISA stuff? I better figure out what's going on here really quick or I'm going to get steamrolled. So I did what most young lawyers do. I started asking around in the community to find out who handles ERISA cases. And I quickly learned the answer was no one. And then I thought, hmm, this could be an awfully interesting career opportunity for me. So how do I get up to speed? And I started looking around and I realized that the only way that I could get up to speed was by attending national seminars put on by the American Bar Association and the like. And I started attending seminars. And after about the second one, I realized that the speakers were just as lost as I was. And I figured I could do as good a job as they could. And as each case built on the last one, I felt more and more comfortable. And voila, I had a career. So if in this situation, someone had just written a $2,500 check, your career would be significantly different today. It probably would have happened inevitably because I was handling health insurance and disability insurance denials, but nobody had raised ERISA before that. And the, the Jenner and Block removal was shortly after the issuance of a watershed case by the Supreme Court called Pilot Life versus Dado. And whoever the defense lawyer was in that case needs to be enshrined in the defense lawyer hall of fame because he's the one who came up with the idea that these garden variety insurance claims involving health or disability benefits where the benefits are provided by an employer are governed by the ERISA law and they're removable to federal court. And not only that, if ERISA applies, there is no opportunity to sue the insurance company for any type of damages or penalties or punitive damages under state's typical bad faith insurance laws. So it was a huge victory for the insurance industry. Well, I do like this concept of having a shrine of Hall of Fame attorneys. I'm assuming from an ERISA standpoint, you would be in that. So maybe we just get into the weeds a little bit now. What is a top level summary of ERISA to like, or even to us, like definitely something where I've tried to read the code or articles and it really makes no sense to me. Okay, so first of all, ERISA stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. It's a law that Congress passed in 1974 with the intention of remedying two distinct problems. If you've ever seen the movie Casino, you'll know about one of the problems. The movie Casino opens with a voiceover by Joe Pesci, where he talks about how Las Vegas got built with funding from the Teamsters Pension Funds that was diverted from the Teamsters Pension Funds via organized crime to build Las Vegas into a gambling locale. And Congress was very concerned that organized crime was using employee pension funds as their personal piggy banks. And they wanted to make sure that that stopped. The other impetus for ERISA occurred a few years earlier than that, and that was when the Studebaker Car Company, based in South Bend, Indiana, closed their doors. I had not heard anything about Studebaker in years until Pete Buttigieg ran for president and talked about how the Studebaker factory in South Bend had been repurposed 
into an incubator hub in South Bend. But Studebaker used to make the ugliest cars on the road. I know that because my grandfather owned one. And I never forgave my grandfather for selling his Studebaker about six months before I got my driver's license. <laughs> because if I had ended up with that car, I would have had the most distinctive car in the high school parking lot. <laughs> but what happened when Studebaker went out of business was their workers learned to their dismay that the company had taken the money that was supposedly set aside for their pensions and used it to try to shore up the company. Unfortunately, those efforts were unsuccessful. The company still failed and the workers were left without a pension. So you've heard me talk about pensions. So where does this other stuff come in? Well, that came in during the summer of 1974 because both the House and the Senate had each passed a version of ERISA that dealt explicitly with retirement benefits. And because the two versions of the law were somewhat different, the bill went to a conference committee in the summer of 1974. And Congress was very preoccupied that summer with something else, the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And during the course of the meetings of the conference committee, somebody brought up the issue of employer-sponsored self-funded welfare benefits, not welfare in the sense of public assistance, but collective bargaining agreements generally deal with both wages, retirement, and benefits for the good and welfare of employees, fringe benefits, such as health insurance, disability insurance, and so on. And I actually didn't learn about this until last year when I met one of the individuals who actually drafted the ERISA law. And it turned out that the reason that the law was expanded to encompass what the law refers to as welfare benefits is because a lot of the funds that were set up to fund employees' health benefits were, were used for kickbacks to pay for play schemes and other internal corruption that made those funds insolvent almost from the get-go. And one of the sponsors of the ERISA law, Senator Jacob Javits, was made aware of this. And he was insistent that the law be expanded to encompass welfare benefits. But this is a law that was passed in 1974. And to this day, it remains probably the most important federal law affecting more people that hardly anybody knows anything about because it has pervasive impact on pretty much everything but employee salaries. And people don't find out about ERISA until they've had a claim denied. And then they go, you know, I want to sue the insurance company and I want to get punitive damages. And it turns out they can't do either, that they have to go through a, a kabuki dance of an appeal before they even file a lawsuit and they're precluded from recovering anything other than the benefits at issue for the most part. So uh, ERISA has had just a dramatic impact on insurance, employment law, employee benefits. And one of the reasons that it is so complex is that the statute attempted to engraft 
two disparate areas of law into one, trust law and contract law. And then on top of that, the court started engrafting another aspect of substantive law, administrative law into ERISA. And as a result, there is total confusion by the judges, by the litigants, um, and especially by the Supreme Court, which every time they take an ERISA case, they seem to, seem to make things worse than they were before they took that case. A lot to unpack there. My two biggest takeaways. A, I love uh, mob movies and organized crime stuff like that. Had no idea. I mean, never put those things together. You'd always hear in those, I was a big, a big, big Sopranos fan too. And they always talk about like, you know, these union pension funds getting ripped off, but I, I never put those things together. So that's a really interesting piece of history that sort of goes beyond and explains this. Number one, number two, insurance companies are really effective at, at cabining these things off and making sure that their exposure is limited. You know, I think also about the rule in Illinois about limiting what you can say about insurance in a jury trial, right, in state court about what kind of insurance coverage there is too. So it's good that this exists. It's also, as you said, a defense lawyer hall of fame for that one, because, you know. <laughs> so let, let me just pick up on a comment that you just made, Max. The ERISA law has had huge impact on personal injury lawyers as well because of health health insurance. You you referenced something that's known as the collateral source rule. Sure. That that insurance can't be brought up in front of a jury when somebody is trying to prove their damages for personal injury. But until relatively recently, insurance companies were precluded by states from trying to recoup the money that they had paid to parties who were injured in car accidents or as a result of medical negligence or products liability. And now it's become a really huge part of personal injury practice to deal with reimbursement claims that are brought by insurance companies trying to recoup dollar for dollar what they paid out. And there's, there have even been some cases where the insurance companies have been able to recoup more than they paid out, that they were able to successfully argue that the, the injured party's lawyer presented their case to a jury that the hospital bills were, let's say, $100,000, even though insurance only paid 50,000 of that because of preferred provider discounts. And the insurance companies have been able to recoup the amount of the bill, the $100,000, in my example, so, you know, not only do they get a free ride on the personal injury claim, they're often able to recoup more than they expended. I remember being a law clerk in law school for personal injury firm and having to research that issue about whether there were any ways to get around some of those liens that, that the insurers were able to slap on these cases when somebody was a Medicaid or I think Medicare recipient, if memory serves, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of school there, but I think that's what it was. And it just... I remember being really frustrated because I was looking at case. I mean, I started digging into federal case law too, and it was just like, yeah, there's no, you're not, not going to get around yeah. this stuff. Yeah, the, the answer is no. And for for both of you guys and maybe your listeners out there as well, if you're Star Trek fans, <laughs> Arissa is like the Borg. You know, the, 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 Borg the Borg are are characters in Star Trek. They're a collective and before they attack, they announce, you know, we are the Borg, resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. And that's kind of the way ERISA goes. 
So the experience that, that you related, Max, I've heard a similar experience related by a federal judge. So there was one of the early cases that was brought under ERISA was a case called Andrews Clark versus Travelers Insurance Company. The plaintiff was the widow of someone who died as a result of being denied reimbursement for medical care that his doctors thought was necessary. And after her, her husband died, Mrs. Andrews Clark brought an action for wrongful death against the insurance company for denying the, the reimbursement for treatment. Travelers, which is now United Healthcare, filed a motion to dismiss. And Judge Young from Massachusetts took a look at the motion to dismiss, called in his law clerks and said, I'm going to deny this motion, write it up. And the law clerks came back a couple weeks later and said, we're really sorry, Judge Young, but we think that the motion to dismiss has to be granted. And Judge Young said, you didn't research this hard enough. You go back and you research this some more and you give me the answer that I want to see. And they came back a couple of weeks later and they said, sorry, Judge, this case needs to be dismissed. And it's a very interesting case to read because at the end of the opinion, Judge Young related his frustration with the ERISA law and how it precluded a totally justifiable wrongful death action. And he, he asked, he, he pointed out, you know, the world should know what's taken place here and really should care about this because this, this is a problem that everyday people are going to face if they're denied by their insurance companies and somebody dies as a result. I think the question I've been asking the whole time is how do you sue the insurance companies? Is there, what is the best route or the only route to sue an insurance company for a bad faith defense? Would it have to be in a situation where just ERISA can't apply? And so if that's the answer, when does ERISA not apply? So ERISA applies anytime you're dealing with the benefit provided by a private sector employer. And there are three significant exceptions. One is if you buy the insurance yourself. So if you're self-employed, you go on the exchange and you buy a healthcare plan that's um, compatible with the Affordable Care Act, or you contact an insurance broker and you buy your own disability insurance. Second exception is if you work for the government, either the federal government, state government, or municipal government, or a public school district. The third major exception is if you are enrolled in a church plan that has chosen to be exempt from ERISA. Under the Internal Revenue Code, church plans can elect to be covered by ERISA, but most do not. So a church plan is more complicated than it sounds. And there's been some recent litigation over this. So obviously, if you're an employee, let's say, of the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago, and you get your benefits through the archdiocese, that's a church plan. If you work for a synagogue or a mosque, and there are other employees, and you're provided with group benefits, that's a church plan. The complicating issue that's come up has to do with healthcare plans or, or healthcare providers rather that 
either are or were at one time affiliated with religious organizations, Sisters of Mercy, Franciscan Sisters, and so on. A lot of those healthcare providers, like Advocate Healthcare, were at one time very closely affiliated with a, a religious sponsor. That affiliation has grown more attenuated over time, although there is still some affiliation. But very recently, the Supreme Court heard a case that was brought by Advocate because they were not properly funding their retirement benefits. And even though three federal circuit courts had ruled that Advocate and their ilk were not church plans, the Supreme Court found that they were church plans. So they are exempt from ERISA and not subject to any of its requirements. But for most employees who are working for private sector employers, any fringe benefit that they receive through their employer is going to be governed by ERISA. So if let's say you have an employee with an ERISA plan, they can't sue the insurance company under bad faith defense. It sounds like they can't get punitive damages. So what can they get? Are the remedies just limited to the benefits that were denied? Mostly yes, but not completely. So somebody in the situation that you just presented, if they're denied, as I mentioned earlier, they first have to go through a pre-litigation claim appeal as a precondition to filing a lawsuit. And then for the lawsuit that they file, rather than suing for breach of contract, which is the normal way that you would sue an insurance company, you have to file a claim under ERISA section 502A1B, which to make ERISA even more confusing has a different code section. It's codified at 29 United States Code section 1132A1B. But 502A1B and 29 USC 1132A1B are one and the same. And that's a provision that says that any employee whose benefits have been denied can bring an action to recover benefits due under the terms of a plan. In addition to the benefits, they may be able to recover prejudgment interest and they may be able to recover attorney's fees. But both prejudgment interest and attorney's fees are payable at the discretion of the court and are not guaranteed. And the case law on this varies across the country. And so this is the kabuki dance you were also describing earlier. So walk us through that. How do you even get into court? So there are a number of elements to that question. And I'll, I'll save my favorite one for last. So the, the Department of Labor was charged under the ERISA statute to promulgate a set of regulations dealing with the provision of the ERISA statute that requires that benefit plans give claimants a full and fair review of the denial of their claims. And the Department of Labor has issued three sets of regulations since the law was enacted that provide in great detail what information has to be conveyed in a denial letter, what the, timely, what the timeliness is for deciding a claim, and then there are provisions about what an appeal consists of in order to be full and fair. 
So for instance, if the claimant has been denied benefits, the claimant has the right to demand that he or she be provided with a complete copy of the insurance company's claim file. The insurance company can't hold anything back. They can't charge for it. They have to provide all of that information. They have to disclose any consultants who are involved in deciding claims and what their credentials are. And then the claimant has the right to submit any information that the claimant considers to be relevant in establishing their entitlement to benefits. And for disability benefits, even after an appeal is submitted, if the insurance company um, receives further evidence that could be adverse to the claimant, the claimant is entitled to review that evidence and comment on that evidence before a final decision is reached. The last part that I wanted to mention is that certain judges have taken on the reputation of being what are called textualists, and their judicial philosophy is to strictly follow the text of a statute and not let courts intervene and create remedies and procedures that are not contained in the statute. A, a known and, and you know, very famous textualist is Justice Neil Gorsuch. But there is a judge who sits on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, Anul Tapar, who is also a very well-known textualist. And he wrote a concurring opinion in, ERISA, in an ERISA case last year where he questioned whether claimants are required to file a pre-litigation appeal because the statute doesn't say that they are. He said that it can be in the contract, it can be in the insurance policy, but if it's not in the contract and it's not in the statute, then courts have no license to hold claimants to, to engage in this process. And you know, I, I found that, that, that opinion to be startling and very eye-opening because it opens the door to a lot about ERISA litigation that is completely judge-made by judges who are kind of feeling their way through ERISA litigation, and they made up rules as they went along. So a, a, a huge example is, so you litigate your case to a court, you present your briefs, you argue the case, and the judge says, I think that the uh, decision made by the insurance company was wrong, but I'm not entirely convinced that the plaintiff's entitled to benefits. I'm going to remand this case to the insurance company in order them to take another look. There is nothing in the ERISA statute that provides for remands of cases. And arguably, not only are remands extra statutory, they are arguably unconstitutional because federal judges are required to issue final judgments of conclusive character. They are not allowed to issue advisory opinions. And remands are advisory opinions. And I have personally tried on several occasions to get the whole regime of ERISA litigation before the Supreme Court. So far, nobody has bitten. I had a, a case in the Third Circuit that I thought might be a good vehicle for challenging remands. I had a case in New Jersey. The judge uh, 
ruled that the decision was arbitrary and capricious and remanded the decision to Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. And lo and behold, Liberty filed a notice of appeal. I then promptly filed a motion to dismiss the appeal for lack of federal appellate jurisdiction. And the court sat on the case for a while. And finally, they issued an order saying, file merits briefs. You know, file your arguments on the merits of this dispute. So we do that. We get scheduled for oral argument. And three days before the oral argument, the court issues an order saying the parties are to focus on the jurisdictional issue. So we get in front of the court and Judge Krause on the Third Circuit says to me, you know, I, I know you've argued this issue about remands, but how do we have jurisdiction to entertain your argument? Did you file a notice of cross appeal? I said, Your Honor, the notice of appeal was defective. There was no way that I could properly file a notice of cross appeal. So she kind of nodded her head. And then in the opinion, it says that the court didn't have jurisdiction to consider the issue because there was no notice of cross appeal. Had I filed a notice of cross appeal because the court ultimately dismissed the appeal for lack of jurisdiction, the court would undoubtedly, undoubtedly have said, well, we don't have to consider this issue of remands because we dismissed the appeal. So we end up at square one. But the whole regime of ERISA litigation is judge-made. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit is the only court of appeals in the country that permits trials of ERISA cases, bench trials, in certain circumstances, if the standard of judicial review is de novo. In every other circuit in the country, all ERISA litigation is conducted as a review of what is called an administrative record. But it's not an administrative record. ERISA cases are not administrative law cases. Insurance companies are not government agencies. And there's absolutely no basis for this regime in the way that, that ERISA cases are reviewed nor is there even a basis for the courts to preclude jury trials of ERISA cases. Because if you look at all of the Supreme Court decisions on when jury trials are allowed, particularly the Teamsters versus Terry case, which dealt with the right to a jury trial under the Labor Relations Management Act and found that there was a right to jury trial because the claims resemble breach of contract actions, so under the Seventh Circuit, there's a right to jury trial. The federal judges just sing menomena when you try and argue the right to a jury trial in front of them in ERISA cases. They say it's equitable, but case after case from the federal courts say that these benefit claims are analogous to breach of contract actions. So there's a clear disconnect there. So a lot... A lot to talk about there. A couple things jump out. Number one, I didn't take administrative law in law school. And for our, for assuming we have some non-lawyer listeners who aren't just our family members, you know, what Mark is talking about is that not every benefit you're conferred in, in, in this country automatically gives you a right to go straight to a courtroom for it. Sometimes you have to exhaust what's called administrative remedies. So I, I know you used to do social security disability benefits, right, Mark? Social security benefits, for right. example, go to government hearings correct before you can get to a courtroom for it. But at least as I understood it, the, the main issue here is you're basically conferring government-like 
authority or judicial authority onto an insurance company over interpreting their insurance contract to confer a benefit or not and whether they whether they give it. And so these judges in remanding these cases back to the insurance company are in effect operating as if they were, if it were a government hearing, right? They're treating these insurance hearing processes as if they have the same constitutional authority, right? That is exactly correct. And social security is a really good example. And I think that that's precisely where the courts have gone wrong because they, the federal courts hear a, a large volume of social security appeals. So in, in the United States, we have created this regime of administrative law, which is a form of litigation outside of the courts involving administrative agencies, which are either imbued with authority because of their expertise like the Environmental Protection Agency and possessing expertise with regard to pollution issues or social security disability claims where the agency appoints administrative law judges who are neutral, objective fact finders. So in a social security disability case, a claimant who believes that they're disabled, they first file an application for benefit. It's reviewed by a, uh, a lower level agency official who decides whether they get benefits or not. If it's denied, then you can request reconsideration. If that's denied, then the, the matter gets heard by an administrative law judge who conducts a due process hearing where the claimant has the right to examine and cross-examine witnesses and subpoena adverse witnesses and only then, if the, if the claimant loses, can the claimant ultimately take their case to the federal court for administrative review. But even then, the court proceeding is a review proceeding of an administrative record. The claimant doesn't get the right to a trial. There isn't a right to take any depositions or any other types of discovery. The court reviews the claim with a thumb on the scale in favor of the agency where their decision is presumed correct unless the court finds that it's unsupported by substantial evidence. So the federal courts with the RISA cases are viewing these cases as being analogous to social security, forgetting the part about how social security administrative law judges are um, sworn officers to act independently and objectively in order to fully and fairly develop the record in favor of the claimant. That is totally not the case when you're dealing with insurance companies that are publicly held companies and have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders, which they may view as predominant to any duty that they owe to ERISA benefit claimants. Well, and I and this is also someone can get their disability benefits that are owed to them, which is the most egregious part about all of this. And so you're going through this kabuki dance just to get to square one. It sounds like it takes about, you know, several years to get there. And there just reeks of conflict of interest. The insurance companies then get to determine whether or not this falls within how they interpret the policies. And then you go back to the district court to, I guess, kind of figure that out. You know, one, I remember you and I talked maybe about a month ago, and you'd mentioned that there are sometimes some pretty ridiculous situations and cases that you've encountered. 
what are some of the more interesting or fun, I don't know if fun is the right word, cases that you've seen out there? I think you once maybe mentioned auto asphyxiation. There might be some other situations as well. There are a whole variety of situations that the best screenwriters in Hollywood couldn't make up. So, you know, one area in which I work is with respect to accidental death insurance, people who, who die in sudden and unexpected, unforeseen type of occurrences like car accidents. But the, the number one most litigated type of accidental death insurance claim is drunk driving. The insurance companies uh, push back on that. And most of the policies now have specific exclusions for drunk driving. They also mostly now have exclusions for unintentional drug overdoses. If you're using illicit drugs or prescription drugs, contrary to how they've been prescribed. But the, the next most common litigated accidental death insurance case is autoerotic asphyxiation, where somebody is, is trying to get some sort of a high to enhance sexual gratification usually by partially strangling themselves. And every so often things go awry and the strangulation is complete and the person ends up dying. And the courts were receptive to these claims as accidental death claims because you know nobody who does this does this with the expectation that they're going to die. I mean, this is not like committing suicide by, by strangulation self-strangulation by hanging. Right. It is um, actually an accident, at least from an it, standpoint. It, it is an accident, but the U.S. Court of Appeals here in Chicago threw these cases for a loop a couple of years ago where they rejected their own precedent and decisions from the Second and Ninth Circuit, specifically dealing with autoerotic asphyxiation. The Seventh Circuit didn't have an autoerotic asphyxiation case, but they had other cases before that, that laid the groundwork for accepting such claims. And clearly the court was just displaying their moral repugnance rather than considering the law in the way that these policies are written. But the, the, where a lot of these cases end up getting litigated is where there are medical considerations involved. So, you know, if you have a heart attack, you might have a heart attack as a result of a shock to your system, but it's not considered to be an accidental death because it's considered a natural death. You've died from a natural disease process. Or if you're hospitalized and you undergo surgery and the surgery doesn't go well and you die on the operating table, there isn't an accidental death insurance claim because it, it, it arises out of, out of a natural cause. But there have been other cases where if you have an accident, I, I handled a case where somebody tore his Achilles tendon playing pickup basketball. He had surgery to repair the Achilles tendon and died shortly afterward from a pulmonary embolism. And the insurance company argued that, that the pulmonary embolism was due to the immobility following the surgery. And the, the Court of Appeals flatly rejected that that the chain of events was triggered by the accident. Or there are cases where somebody has an underlying medical condition and they've fallen into a body of water and they drown. 
And the lead case on that, defining that as a, as a compensable accidental death, is a decision written in the 1890s by an appellate judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, who later went on to greater fame. And that judge was William Howard Taft, who later became president of the United States and then chief justice of the United States. So these cases have been around for a while. And just so I understand this piece correctly then, so there might be a circuit split right now on whether or not auto asphyxiation is an accident. So we could get like a Justice Gorsuch opinion in the next couple of years deciding the circuit split. That is very possible. And David Carradine will be avenged if you can bring this case, Mark. Perhaps. Perhaps. I also, I got to say, I mean, we're recording this. I really wish we had the, we were going to post a video of Max's face during parts of this because he just lost it. I've never seen him lose it like that before. I didn't know we were going that direction. I kind of did. So I, uh, I didn't tell you about this beforehand on purpose. Oh my God. I'm at, uh, Mark, part of this is I'm at messes with me. So bless his heart. He took it easy on me. He's deliberately written some of these bios in such a way where I am just guaranteed to just choke and throw up all over my words reading it and, you know, finds other ways to sneak things in here to sandbag me and see if he can catch me off guard. So that was a good one. I just, I'm chuckling at the idea of these judges sitting there and saying, well, the law says, I mean, it's not in that way. It's not funny even because it's basically, I'm thinking back, what was the movie I watched recently? The Chicago seven, the trial of the Chicago seven. And there's this great monologue by Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman saying, they're basically going to find us guilty of not liking us. And that's basically it, right? They, the insurance company ought to pay this out, but the judges have decided, you know, we just are repulsed by this act. We're not gonna, I mean, we're laughing, but it's pretty serious that they're denying coverage based on their own personal view of what they view as an act of moral turpitude, right? They're turning something that's accidental into a suicide to help this insurance company weasel out of paying a death benefit. Well, and just think about what they're making the family members go through, because it doesn't sound like this is a quick process. So you're making these folks- Oh, oh, no. And and the widow in, in the case that went up to the Seventh Circuit won in the trial court. Judge Robert Dow wrote a just a- brilliant, thorough opinion explaining why this was compensable and citing every authority, you know, known to lawyers across the country. He wrote a bulletproof opinion. And in fact, I ran into him in the courthouse shortly after the appellate decision came down. And, and I, I, I was talking to him about it. And he said, you know, at first look at this case, I thought, no way is the plaintiff going to win this case. And he said, then he got into it and he realized, no, the law dictates a result in favor of the plaintiff and against the insurance company. And that's the way he wrote it up. Unfortunately, just at the time that this decision came down, I was litigating a case in Indiana, which is part of the Seventh Circuit, involving an individual who had died from huffing aerosol inhalants. And I I was basing the case on Judge Dow's district court opinion. And the appellate decision just blew the case out of the water. As an aside, I think Judge Dow is awesome. He's by far, I found to be one of the most reasonable and just intelligent and well-reasoned federal judges we have to offer in the Northern District. I mean, and beyond just being sharp, he's kind and reasonable to deal with as an attorney, which is really. Well, and from a practitioner standpoint, that's how it should be. You, you may have preconceived notions going into a decision, but the the analysis and the case law is what it is. And it, 
he followed it the way it should have been followed. On the other hand, sticking with, with Judge Dow, he wrote an opinion in one of my cases called Holmstrom versus MetLife. It was early in his tenure as a federal judge. He wrote a 54-page opinion finding in favor of MetLife on an arbitrary and capricious standard of review. And I got him reversed. It was the first time he had ever been reversed as a, as a federal judge. So, you know, judges don't always get it right and courts of appeals don't always get it right, but they got it, the court of appeals got it right in the Holmstrom case and they got it wrong in the, in the auto erotic asphyxiation case. And Judge, Dow, and Judge Dow still talks to you. So that's good too. He does. He does. <laughs> All right, Amit, you're up, buddy. All right. So we, at the end of every episode, are trying to do a shout out of the week, just something nice to end these episodes with, especially right now with the pandemic. It can be a book, a TV show. It can be a person. It could be Judge Dow. It could be a child. Anything you want to shout out a that pet. Pet could be TV show, could be anything. So what's your shout out of the week? So my shout out of the week is still related to ERISA. My shout out is to William Acker Jr., who was a federal judge in Alabama who passed away a couple of years ago. And it was one of the great privileges of my life to have gotten to know him. Unfortunately, I didn't get to know him until his later years. But Judge Acker was super brilliant. He's a graduate of Yale Law School. He tried cases across Alabama and Mississippi, every kind of case imaginable before he became a federal judge. And he was appointed to the federal bench by Richard Nixon, because back then the Democrats were Republicans and the Republicans were Democrats. And he was a Republican for Nixon. And there weren't that many in, the, in Alabama then, and that's how he got appointed. But when he got his first ERISA case and was so bamboozled by what the insurance company was arguing, in his opinion, he wrote that he thought that ERISA stood for everything ridiculous imagined since Adam. And he subsequently wrote a law review article where he remarked on that opinion, where he said, when I, when I wrote the opinion in that case, I thought that there was something redeeming lurking somewhere in ERISA. But he had since concluded that ERISA was irredeemable and that there was absolutely nothing redeeming about the ERISA statute and Congress ought to start over again because the, the cases had just gone so far off the mark from what Congress appeared to intend because the statute is written from the perspective of protecting the employees. And the way that the courts view it is that it protects employers. So um, he, he took a really hard position on ERISA and he would issue decision after decision and the 11th Circuit would reverse him in case after case. But he was a illustration of what lifetime tenure means, that it means that you get to say what you think is right. You know, no federal judge ever got impeached or removed from the bench because they got reversed. And to his dying day, he continued to say what he thought was right. And I had just tremendous admiration for Judge Acker and 
I, I miss him immensely. I miss the opportunity to pick up the telephone and call him and just talk about something that, that, that happened because he was always a wonderful audience and he was a wonderful storyteller himself. You know, us Yankees got nothing on Southerners as far as the ability to tell a good story. And in his last years, he wrote a number of vignettes about experiences that he had had in his trial lawyer career. And he shared a number of them with me and I've kept them and I've treasured them. So my shout out goes to William Acker Jr. That's wonderful. That's really awesome. Thank you. And you're right. Southerners are much better at storytelling than us Northerners. Mark, anything you'd like to plug before we let you go today? Nothing specific. You know, I, I mentioned before we started that there are some COVID angles to my practice. Sure. So I, I would like to mention those. Go um, for it. So, you know, going back to the uh, accidental death cases, which we had talked about, unfortunately, COVID deaths are almost never going to be considered accidental deaths. However, they may be considered um, compensable under workers' compensation laws. If you have an occupation that particularly exposes you to the virus and you've been exposed more likely than not in the course of your work. But where we're starting to see COVID cases come up in our practice, we're starting to see some health benefit denials for treatments, but we're also starting to see disability denials. And the media has extensively covered the population suffering from what's called long COVID or long haul COVID, where even after they've recovered from the initial infection, they've had persistent symptoms, which have precluded them from working and insurance companies are being very resistant to that. The other wave that we're expecting to see is a wave of mental health claims regarding disabilities that are COVID-related from frontline healthcare workers and first responders who have had to deal with unbelievable illness and death that they never expected to see in their career, and it has been nonstop, and also from people in the general population who have been sort of cast adrift over the last 14 months or so and are suffering from depression and anxiety. And one of the issues that we deal with in our practice is that while healthcare requires that there be parity and treatment between mental health claims and claims for physical illnesses, disability insurance is allowed to flagrantly discriminate against mental illness. And it is almost ubiquitous that disability insurance policies limit the duration of disability payments for psychiatric conditions to no more than 24 months, even if the disability is persistent. And that needs to be changed. Fortunately, there are some legislative initiatives in Illinois and elsewhere. That discrimination is flat out illegal in Vermont. It is flat out illegal in Canada under their human rights laws. But the problem with the US human rights laws that would potentially address this is that either they don't address the content of insurance policies or they are considered to be preempted by the ERISA law. 
So that problem needs to be fixed. And one of the legislative initiatives is aimed at amending the Illinois Human Rights Act to not only encompass the content of disability insurance policies, but also draft the proposed legislation in a way that would avoid ERISA preemption. You know, right now, the Department of Human Rights is interested and supportive, but they need to work on dealing with the whole scope of the Illinois Human Rights Act and you know, what, what else might need to be rewritten to accommodate this provision. So I plan on working with the department in the coming months. And there's also a state task force that Governor Pritzker is in the process of appointing to look into this issue. And hopefully the task force will bear fruit as well. Mark, thank you for your leadership and for all your hard work on this stuff. It's funny, for a law that you didn't intend to, you you never intended to set out to practice, that you accidentally fell into, and that most people do not understand, it's a law that, as you pointed out, touches on a lot. It, it you know, for all that Ahmed and I have talked about the breadth of employment law, this is a law that nobody talks about that affects, you know, any benefit other than their wages, right, people get from their employers. So, you know, among a lot of other things, obviously, that we covered today. So thank you for your service on that, for all you've done to educate our bar and many others, yeah, and for a, all your hard work for people. To going back Except, to the Hall of Fame, I mean, you'd be in the yeah. Hall of Fame, for sure, from an ERISA standpoint. I mean, you are a rock star of ERISA litigation. Yeah. So thank you for everything you've done. That's very kind. You're very welcome. Uh, Mark, last thing before we let you go, how do people find you? So our web address, is www.dabofsky.com, D-E-B-O-F-S-K-Y.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, whatever whatever you search through, hopefully you'll, you'll get to us. And probably the internet's the best way to find us, www.dabofsky.com. Mark's going to start his own TikTok channel about oh, ERISA yeah. soon, we hear. Oh, perish the thought. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Mark. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.